Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. I was recently reading a book entitled The Faithful Executioner. As you can probably guess, it's a book about an executioner. Basically, this guy who was an executioner for 40 years kept this journal, and a historian ends up going through the journal, and he gleans what he can about this guy's life, about the time period, about crime, etc. It really, it's a fascinating book, um, and it's also a, a random book. I often share things that I'm learning in my reading with my wife, and she's always like, what in the world are you reading? Because I, I read the most random stuff. I'll, I'll link my reading list in the show notes if you're interested in kind of seeing some of the, the different things that I read. Um, but I like to read diverse things because I am genuinely interested in just about everything. I just love information and knowledge. Um, I, I love knowing how the world works and what is happening in it and what has happened in it. But I also love reading diverse things because there is so often something that you can glean from cross-discipline study that you wouldn't otherwise see. It just gives you some different perspectives. I think you see a perfect example of this in uh, engineering today. So many of the devices that we're making are now based on what we see in nature. We're learning that it's actually very valuable to study biology in order to understand some aspects of physics and engineering. One of my other favorite examples is a relatively new insight in realizing how studying math and origami can help with a number of different real-world problems. Uh, don't believe me, just go YouTube. It's, it's fascinating. It's just amazing. God's world is such an amazing and interconnected place, and, and I love learning about different things. Well, wouldn't you know it, but when I was reading The Faithful Executioner the other day, it just so happened that the 16th century ended up connecting with this 21st century podcast. The subject of the book um, is, is an interesting one, um, and the, uh, the protagonist, I guess, I guess he's a protagonist, I don't know, he's not really a good guy or bad guy, but um, the character uh, in the story, the main character, is interesting, um, and he lives in an interesting time in history. And right around the time of the Reformation, when much of the landscape was changing, both in terms of, of religion and the law, as well in terms of, um, you know, like thought and science. Our concern for this episode, though, is going to focus primarily on the law. Before the time of our faithful executioner, Mr. Franz, executions and punishment were pretty localized events. There wasn't much of a nationalized or federal law for things that uh, you would be punished or executed for. Of course, you know, you can probably think of what some of the problems would be in that the justice meted out might end up being disproportionate to the crime. It might be unfair or maybe even whimsical. Two identical crimes might get punished differently at different times based on the mood of the locals at the time, who you are, and any other number of circumstances. There were definitely issues with the justice system of the time, for sure. In order to fix these, the government came up with some legislation known as the Constitutio Criminalis Carolina. This new law code regulated crimes and punishments, as well as how to handle interrogations. Uh, and since I feel stupid trying to say it in an accent like that all the time, I'm going to just call it the Carolina. That should, uh, that should work out better. Anyway, they regulated corporal punishment, capital punishment, and torture, um, which sounds like the Carolina did 
a good thing, right? Regulating those things. Sounds great. I mean, we would all probably think that torture shouldn't be around at all. But hey, if it is around, it should be regulated, right? Well, I'm going to read a number of pages from, from uh, the book, The Faithful Executioner, because what the author depicts is something which I think can help color in the discussions that we've had this season about legislation. I think this history lesson will be very helpful in showing us how legislation often functions in the real world, and quite differently than we all intuitively expect it to. So, let me go ahead and, and uh, read a few excerpts here. Um, some of them will be pretty lengthy, so batten down the hatches. By the early 16th century, territorial rulers and the emperor himself had come to appreciate the value of standardized legal procedures in governing their own realms, but they faced considerable opposition from many quarters on the use of Roman law in their attempted codifications. The Carolina hit upon a workable compromise between innovative jurists attracted by the substance and consistency of Roman law and conservative secular authorities suspicious of foreign laws and customs and jealous of their own prerogatives. While we would in no way detract from the old, lawful, and just customs of electors, princes, and estates, the authors of the Carolina sought to establish fair and consistent standards and procedures among the empire's diverse jurisdictions, involving trained legal professionals as much as possible. Rather than just proscribing a variety of crimes, the new code meticulously defined the scope and nature of the offenses, provided standards for arrest and establishing evidence, and issued formulas for judicial proceedings themselves. Clarity and regularity in practice were the goals, with the notable exceptions of magic and infanticide, newly promoted to capital crimes, the Carolina did not alter customary definitions of serious criminal offenses. Virtually all medieval forms of execution, including live burial, live burning, drowning, and quartering, likewise remained untouched in substance. Most important for young Franz Smith, uh, the Carolina endorsed the Bambergenesis's detailed guidelines for the performance of each judicial functionary, including the individual formerly known as the hangman, now consistently referred to as the executioner, or the sharp judge. The document strongly recommended regular salaries for reputable individuals to be supplemented by a sliding scale of compensation for different types of executions, with drawing and quartering earning the most. The Carolina also formally guaranteed a professional executioner immunity from all popular or legal retribution for his work, and required that courts publicly reaffirm this status at each judgment. Cruel, corrupt, or otherwise unprofessional executioners were to be dismissed immediately and punished appropriately. Finally, to prevent the capricious or otherwise unjustified use of physical coercion, the new imperial ordinances set out copious instructions on what evidence might be considered sufficient to initiate torture, for example, the testimony of two impartial witnesses, which crimes qualified for such special interrogation, most notably witchcraft and highway robbery, and how such duress was to be applied, listing the standard implements of torture on an ascending scale of severity, beginning with thumbscrews for women. Okay, so let's address that, that section right there. Important to know here, right, we, we talked about why they're breaking out these new laws. It's to try to um, you know, streamline things and, and make things better, right? What the laws did not do, the Carolina did not do, it didn't touch capital crimes, except it did add infanticide and 
witchcraft or magic to capital offenses. It didn't touch the execution methods. It tried to leave the the power with, you know, not the states, but whatever, the the subordinates, the the lesser governments. And it gave qualified immunity, which I guess was was a problem all the way back in uh, in the 16th century, right? So uh, what you see throughout the book is um, there is a danger for executioners if they botch executions or if they're unpopular, if, if they don't uh, do their job well enough, they end up getting like stoned by the people or or whatever. Like they, they, there are serious repercussions for them. And there are a number of executioners who end up getting killed because they they botch an execution, which is which is hard to do, right? If somebody moves their head while you're trying to behead them and stuff, uh, all kinds of things can go wrong. And, and you hear about some of those in uh, in this book. But they essentially, the executioners got qualified immunity. I mean, some of these guys are pretty terrible people, which Franz Schmidt is is a pretty good guy of, of all the executioners. But when it talks about some of the other ones, you're like, man, these guys were like corrupt and messed up people. But they got qualified immunity, basically. Uh so uh, that's just interesting. And then, of course, uh, the Carolina limited torture, supposedly. So let's, um, let's read. Th- this next section is really the section that kind of caught my attention, the f- my first read-through. So we know what the intentions were, and we know what the Carolina did. Now let's take a look at what actually happened. The Carolina's higher professional standards for executioners typically translated into better pay. But the law code's broader social impact enhanced Franz Schmidt's position beyond anything its framers could have imagined. Within one generation of the Carolinas' proclamation, criminal arrests, interrogations, and punishments all spiked dramatically throughout the empire. The execution rate likewise skyrocketed, in some places by more than 100% over the previous half-century, and many times that if witch panics are included in the statistics creating a huge demand for trained executioners. In fact, Nuremberg's average execution rate of nine per year during Meister Franz's lifetime in a city of only 40,000 was the highest per capita of any city in the empire, but many larger jurisdictions saw similar levels of activity. Heinrich Schmidt himself averaged nearly 10 executions a year during his service in the more populous Prince Bishopric of Bamberg, and the yearly total for the still larger nearby Magravit of Brandenburg-Ansbach totaled nearly twice that during the same period. What accounts for this apparent surge in crime and punishment? Rising unemployment and inflation, which led to more theft and violence, naturally played a role in the perceived crime wave of Franz Schmidt's day. But the most powerful reason for the increase in prosecutions was, paradoxically, the Carolina itself. The new imperial law code achieved much that was good, but like many well-intentioned reforms, the Carolina also yielded unintended consequences that exacerbated the situation in several unprecedented ways. First, the new codes inadvertently opened local authorities up to greater popular manipulation, most infamously in the case of the witch craze, when mobs or even a single individual could demand the prosecution of a suspected witch, who, if convicted, now faced the death penalty. Second, the Carolinas' attempt to eliminate arbitrariness and unnecessary cruelty in criminal prosecution produced exactly the opposite effect in the use of torture, the so-called last resort of the interrogator. Some jurisdictions, Nuremberg for example, adhered more closely to the Carolinas' prerequisites for administering torture, but elsewhere, 
local authorities paradoxically perceived the Imperial Code's multiple guidelines and restrictions on the appropriate use of special interrogation to be a learned, uh, a learned endorsement of physical coercion during questioning. At the same time, another section of the Carolina, which was intended to prevent recidivism, unintentionally forced the execution of many repeat offenders, often for mere property crimes such as theft that, in an earlier time, would not have sent them to the gallows. How did this happen? To discourage criminals from returning to crime, the Carolina prescribed an ascending scale of punishment, public flogging for a first offense, banishment for a second offense, and in the event that an exiled offender returned and was convicted of a third offense, execution. This frustratingly narrow set of punishment options forced the hand of local governments with tragic consequences. Crimes against property, for instance, had previously resulted in less than a third of the executions in German lands, but during Franz Schmidt's lifetime, they counted for nearly 7 in 10 executions. This seemingly inexplicable harshness was less the product of new cruelty than of deep frustration over the ineffectiveness of existing punishments. Most of the thieves that Meister Franz hanged during his career had lengthy criminal records, comprising numerous imprisonments, various corporal punishments, and banishments. Occasionally, flogging, both painful and humiliating, followed by banishment from the territory, the typical punishment for first- and second-time offenders, produced the desired effect. After the adult, Meister Franz publicly whipped two teenage brothers who stole here and there at the markets. They disappeared from Nuremberg, Nuremberg's criminal records. More often, however, the publicly humiliated and exiled offenders, now permanently cut off from whatever kin and social network they had enjoyed, simply returned to the only life they knew and resumed stealing in another location, often nearby or even in the city itself. The obvious ineffectiveness of local banishment for nonviolent crimes led some European states to adopt a more permanent kind of exile for thieves and other undesirables, known as transportation. But sending deviants across the ocean was not a ready option among landlocked German states, such as Nuremberg and the Prince Bishopric of Bamberg, which possessed neither fleets nor foreign colonies. The Duke of Bavaria did persuade the city of Nuremberg to experiment briefly with leasing its convicted thieves out to Genos Galleys, but after five years, its frugal leaders concluded that the venture was too unreliable. Forced enlistment in the emperor's Hungarian army was another frequently suggested solution, but apparently also remained small-scale and short-lived. The modern-day solution to this problem, internal exile, or extended incarceration, entailed a much greater conceptual leap and was thus even slower to gain acceptance. Most governmental authorities considered long-term imprisonment, except in the case of the dangerously insane, too costly and too cruel. The popular precursor to modern prisons, the workhouse, would gain many adherents during the 17th century, largely because it was touted to be financially self-supporting. But Franz Schmidt's Nuremberg superiors accurately determined early on that such an institution would in fact be a money pit, and thus resisted the new fad for another century. Instead, they embraced the allegedly more efficient punishment of chain gangs for begging and thieving youths and young men, a practice until then limited principally to France. Okay, there is there is so much there, and uh, definitely you should go get the book and, and check out that section, um, or go go listen to that section again. Um, but it it... There's so much to pull out there, right? So first of all, the laws, okay, were intended to do some good things, but what did they end up doing? They ended up significantly spiking executions. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of questions that I have here 
that I don't really know the answer to because this book focuses primarily on Germany. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so before this, right, there, there were definitely executions, but there weren't as many. Um, and, and a part of the reason was because, first of all, they made witchcraft uh, executable as well as, like, if you, if you stole three times, now you're dead, right? The three strikes law, that didn't work in the 1500s, so we decided to resurrect it in the 1900s. Um, but yeah, so you, they didn't kill witches before in Germany, I guess, or maybe it was, it was a rare event. And so it made me wonder, the whole witch craze that, that usually gets blamed on religion, which, don't get me wrong, like, definitely religion played a part in that, but... Uh, at least in Germany, the whole witch hunting thing, at least according to, to this guy, which I don't know anything about the author, um, but at least according to him, the whole witch craze and killing all these witches is largely a governmental issue. It's a, it's a legislation issue for at least Germany. So somebody out there, please do some more research. I would like to know uh, if the Carolina was kind of influential on uh, on. And other places, if it had an influence in the witch craze in the United States, if it kind of um, made its way there, because I know that there was a large German population in the United States too. Anyway, um, really interesting. But the other interesting aspect of it was, you know, prior to this, you needed like, if if there was some crazy guy in in your town, or if there are like two people who had a vendetta against somebody, and they would say, "Ooh, I think this person is a witch." Okay, maybe they could get enough people behind them to kind of get justice done, mob justice. But once you establish the Carolina, what happens is that now this is like federal, this is national law. And so if somebody comes and accuses somebody of something, now the authorities basically are forced to, by the federal law that is above them, the national law, they, they have to go and figure this out and apply punishment if it is the case. And it reminds me so much of the uh, the war on drugs here. How many people get killed like over marijuana stops or something, or a police is like, well, you know, may, there might be marijuana in the car, and now I have to go through these steps. Uh, um, I mean, there was just a, a, a black guy, a soldier, um, just a, a couple weeks ago here. Um, this is May 2021. Um, so th- this, this guy got like tased and, or pepper sprayed and pulled out of his car and everything because he supposedly didn't have tags, which he did. But then you've got cops who are worried about drugs and, um, and all these other things that escalate the situation. So there's so many parallels here with the Carolina and the legislation, um, even though that's dealing with more of the execution and torture aspect. But just so fascinating to me that um, instituting stricter laws that are supposed to do good end up doing more harm in in at least some ways for at least some time. I don't know the history of this all. Maybe they kind of evened those out and corrected things and maybe maybe everything is hunky-dory. But uh, I think this gives you a glimpse at what um, what legislation tends to do. So yeah, the, the other thing I think I forgot here was uh, so torture increased significantly too. And they were saying that, well, even though it allowed for torture and tried to regulate it, what the Carolina did is now that it's on paper that, you know, these steps to torture are are okay, it was kind of a ringing endorsement in the minds of some people like, oh, yeah, 
good idea. I guess I, I guess I can do that. Um, in fact, they probably want me to do that. Uh, again, so uh, like a parallel to to the war on drugs and things here, here today. But um, yeah, just so fascinating. So that's ultimately what we've talked about this season, isn't it? How legislation, I don't think a lot of times there are super malicious people behind all the legislation, but when people try to do good by lording power over other people and by, by making these, these laws, you see that um, they do worse from a federal national level than if you just let, let the, uh, the locals kind of handle it. And you end up creating so much damage. So much. I mean, think of 70% of the people that this guy executed, Franz Schmidt executed in Nuremberg, 70% were like thieves, just thieves who don't get executed normally, but got executed because, hey, if you steal three times, then you're going to get executed. And again, so it's... uh, at the end of this book, this, this author goes into a number of misconceptions that we have about executioners from back in the day. And, and you know, thinking that they're, they're just like these violent, terrible people. And while that certainly existed, um, it's so fascinating to me that he's like, they, they weren't really barbaric like we think they were. And in fact, a lot of the barbarism, a lot of the, the executions and reason people were getting killed and tortured... Um, was because of the state and and legislation, even if that legislation wasn't intended to be doing all of the harm that it did. That's essentially what I want to pull out for legislation, but I I can't really get away from this book without pulling out something else that doesn't really deal, it deals more with the nonviolence thing, um, but because this is a podcast on nonviolence and, and kind of the... Um, the impact that that has on everything else, I think it's it's worthwhile to kind of pull out here. It's interesting if you've listened to the the Just War series and if you've listened to the uh, the season one on nonviolence, that you'll probably have gleaned that um, you know the the early church was very against killing. They were also seemed to be against politics, but then you also have um, even even after the church began to be okay with killing all the way up through 1200s, 1300s, they still thought that that killing marred you. And the Orthodox Church, my understanding is that they still kind of feel this way. Like if you kill somebody, even inadvertently, then you're kind of polluted and and that limits kind of some of the things that you can do. Well, the, the church up to the 1200s, 1300s, if you killed somebody, you might have to miss communion for a year. You might have to pay a certain amount of money for penance or something like you were stained you were polluted and something had to be done priests weren't allowed to kill um because that would pollute them and stain them and uh and you have this idea of of being stained well that applied to the executioners uh even in franz schmidt's day and and a lot of the story is about part of why he's keeping this this journal they think is to at the end of his career he applies for um, you know, his family name to be restored and says, look, I've, I've served you faithfully. Please don't hang this this uh, stain over my family, like release them from it. So so it, it was a big problem for executioners. They were outcasts largely in their society that couldn't have friends, that didn't have, have high standing. 
And uh, what the author kind of points out is that in Franz Schmidt's day, he was he ended up being at a good spot in time because this was starting to change, this perception of people. And part of the reason it was starting to change is because of the Reformation, right? Now, we think that the Reformation is a good thing, and, and if you listen to this season, there was an episode on the Reformation that kind of calls a lot of the... Uh, the reformers out and some of the ideology of the reform out. But um, one of the things that stood out to me here in this book is that the the reform, uh, the reformation just completely deviated from this historic Christian concept of, of the pollution that comes from killing people. So Augustine didn't like killing people, but uh, he was one of the first ones who advocated it and said, okay, okay, you know, we can justify this. But even still, for the next eight, nine hundred years, you've got the church that says, yeah, but it's still a problem and you still have to pay for it or you still have to do penance for it. Um, so you go from the early church that thinks all killing's bad, don't do it, to the next thousand years where they're like, it's not ideal, it's not really good, and it does pollute you, So you, but you can make amends for it. To all of a sudden in the Reformation, killing is, is kind of embraced, and it's gross. Like when you look at, at church history, it's gross to see it go from not accepted at all to, at, well, at least if you're going to accept it, you acknowledge that it's, it's a gross, terrible thing, to, oh my gosh, the Reformers are embracing it and loving it. So let's take a, a little bit of a look of, uh, at, at how this author uh, of The Faithful Executioner kind of paints this picture. Protestant France was probably most grateful for a blessing from the father of the Reformation himself. If there were no criminals, there would be no executioners, Martin Luther preached, adding, The hand that wields the sword and strangles is thus no longer man's hand, but God's hand. And not the man, but God hangs, breaks on the wheel, beheads, strangles, and makes war. Lest the implications for the reviled hangman be lost, Luther concluded, Thus is Meister Hans, the stereotypical executioner's name, a very useful and even merciful man, since he puts a stop to the villain so that he can do no more and warns others so that they can do not the same. The one has his head chopped off by him, The others behind him he admonishes that they should fear the sword and keep the peace. That is a great mercy. While John Calvin remained content to acknowledge the executioner as God's instrument, the ever-ebullient ebullient Luther went so far as to provide a celebrity endorsement for the profession. If you see that there is a lack of hangmen, constables, judges, lords, or princes— and you find that you are qualified, you should offer your services and seek the position so that the essential governmental authority may not be despised or become enfeebled. The clerical elevation of the Schmidt's profession, while a welcome development for executioners, was slow to spread outside of the learned circles. Luther's pleading tone still resonated in one famed jurist's 1565 defense that, although the name of executioner is still hated by many, and it is perceived as an inhuman, bloody, and tyrannical office. He does not sin before God or the world if he acts on orders, not of his own will, but out of justice as God's servant. I hope that grosses you out as much as it grosses me out. Now, even if if somebody thinks that uh, 
that it's okay for the state to kill anyone of Romans 13 this. Um, I can I can understand that a bit, but to do what Luther did and um, just kind of make the state this noble profession, which I guess, I mean, he kind of had to do, right? He had to get in bed with the prince in order to save his own life. Um, he needed He needed the magistrate, for sure. Nevertheless, it's such a significant deviation from all church history before Luther. The other thing I want you to notice is this this diffusion of responsibility, right? You know, hey, he's doing it at the hands of the states, like as God's instrument, God's tool. And that's going to go back to what we talked about, where you know, depending on how you view um, God's use of government, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant, does that mean that Nebuchadnezzar was was uh, a or or Assyria was uh, wielded by God? Does that mean that those two things were were doing His will in the sense that they were submitting to Him, and God wanted them to slaughter Israel and take people into exile and torture people and all that kind of stuff? Or does it mean that even though they were the powers that be at the time, and and they tried to usurp God? that God even guided their hearts and uh, their actions for good, for ultimate good, despite their attempt to usurp him. And I think biblical history is, is very clear as to how God wields governments. And um, I think Luther's, Luther diverges here, and he takes this diffusion of responsibility. Hey, it's not good for me to hate and to kill and to um, take vengeance but hey, it's not my fault. The government's telling me to do it. So many themes we've we've seen come out through come up throughout the season, and I think uh, they they just show themselves again in this interesting book that really has nothing to do with uh, with government and Christian anarchism, but um, which is nevertheless insightful and interesting. So I hope you enjoyed. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it. I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.